Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Strange Water Podcast. I'm so happy you're joining us for another great conversation. Thank you for tuning in. Smart contract auditing is one of those background topics that very few people really think about. The basics are straightforward. Developers will hire specialized auditing firms to painstakingly look through their code, looking for errors, bugs, and other vulnerabilities. The auditors work with the developers to harden their protocol, hopefully making it safe and ready for production. And then, when devs are ready to ship, they make sure to loudly and repeatedly tell everyone that their code is audited. Now, the final part is only implied, but most of us just do the work for them. Because their code is audited, we assume that the protocol is safe. But just like all things in this world, things are much less simple when you look under the hood. It's one thing to say an auditor is going to look at your code, but what is the auditor actually going to do? Are they going to read it line by line, throw a bunch of test cases, try to hack the pre-built binaries? Today's guest is ZeroX Taiga, an auditor and a security engineer at Consensus Diligence, which is Consensus's auditing firm. During the next hour, you're going to hear Ty walk us through the ins and outs of smart contract auditing, including the basics of how an audit works, how smart contract programming differs from more traditional programming, and even some valuable alpha on how to keep your auditor happy. When you finish this conversation, I hope you walk away with two main points. First, if you are developing on-chain, the standard that you need to be working towards is absolutely perfect, bug-free code. This is just not a place where you can cut corners. Second, you are rarely going to hear about audit companies or audits unless something catastrophic happens. But the hard work of auditing happens every single day. For a job that we all implicitly and often explicitly trust with our digital net worth, we don't give it nearly as much attention as it deserves. One more thing before we begin, please do not take financial advice from this or any podcast. Ethereum will change the world one day, but you can easily lose all of your money between now and then. All right, let's get started. Ty, thank you so much for joining us on the Strange Water Podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Rex. No, man, awesome. I'm super excited to um, have this conversation. But before we kind of get into uh, like the more interesting things that are happening in today's crypto and today's DeFi, can we just hear a little bit about your background and like what I what I love to hear is like who were you before you like had heard of crypto or understood the power of crypto and like what was your moment where you realized like oh my god I need to be involved. Right. Yeah, that's um, a, a good question. So basically, before crypto, I was a software engineer at a major game engine company that um, most of you most most likely know. Uh, I'm not unreal, names, but uh, <laughs> the the other one that most of you most likely. Okay. Know. <laughs> Uh, it was Unity, so uh, it's uh, more like uh, less less AAA, but still a rather popular gaming engine. And uh, what I was doing there is I was uh, in their AI department. So we were basically working on uh, reinforcement learning being added to different in-game objects for, for developers, basically to 
breathe in some live into their game objects or industrial applications, right? So there was, there's, it was a hot topic at the time. It was really cool. And for me, it was a hot topic up until I learned about crypto. Um, so, so then uh, the first day I learned about flash loans and arbitrages and basically any sort of like on-chain activity where you can make money without a risk of losing money was fascinating, right? So uh, I feel like a lot of people are actually going um, into crypto that route. And for me, it was the same. I started writing bots, uh, some bots uh, that were just centralized exchange bots, uh, like on Binance and things like that. But um, after that, I just wanted to learn a little better what the smart contracts are about. And I felt like whatever I'm just watching on YouTube and whatever, whatever I'm trying to do myself is just very basic. So I started seeing if I can contribute to other protocols or anything like that. Um, so I did contribute to protocols, write some smart contracts. And eventually I just wanted to convert to crypto full time. So I just went and started working for MetaMask. Um, so I did work at MetaMask for some time, uh, but um, unfortunately at MetaMask, I didn't get to write smart contracts or read smart contracts. So I just went to auditing position and consensus diligence later. Um, and yeah, that, that's uh, where I'm at full time currently at consensus diligence. I'm also contributing to vendor finance, but uh, um, the, the diligence part is also extremely entertaining. And I know we did spoke. They did speak about vendors, so we can uh, talk a little bit more about auditing as well today. But, but yeah, but this is like, in, in a nutshell, how I ended up in crypto. Yeah, so wait, let's just unpack that a little bit more, because like, especially like now in 2023, you know, the only thing like kind of like at the more bleeding edge of technology of, than crypto is AI. And so like, it sounds like you were like playing with those concepts before um, and and like, more so than just like creating research projects or like chat bots and throwing them out there. Like you were using this technology to build real products. And so can you just like talk a little bit about like, like that is like kind of the wet dream of a, of a builder or technology person. And like, what, why was this opportunity? Just how did it speak more to your soul? Right. I mean, AI is fun, right? Like what technology to me always was an opportunity to just create something, right? It's like magic. You don't, you don't need anything except for your computer and then you create stuff right and um that in itself is art and um past that point ai is like a magic art right where you just do something and then it does something that completely blows people away right and it's uh rather relatively accessible to developers right like there's a subset of people who actually writes those different models trains them and uh or not necessarily trains them, but designs the models, right? But then training and actually deploying a model is not that difficult. So this magic is becoming more and more accessible. And I felt like there's just too much attention around it. I, I didn't feel like I'm still early, you know? Um, and it was just before those, like, um, I, I guess not just, but like a year before the um, transformers were introduced. So it was um, commonly introduced, I, I should say, but Essentially, I felt like there's a lot of competition and there's a, a lot less room to kind of impress someone or do something that's going to be novel. Or you have to be at the very, very cutting edge of that and uh, have a completely different kind of level of math and computer knowledge that I might possess or would like to possess, right? And then uh, the crypto kind of scene comes along and then you see that you can uh, basically take advantage of all your data structure, algorithm knowledge, 
write a rather short program that has to be the perfection, right? And then have it hold a lot of money and not a lot of people know about that just yet. And that's a whole nother level of thrill and adrenaline. And like, it's unbelievable that you can get adrenaline writing code. That was weird to me, you know? <laughs> um, but that is what happens when you add the money into the equation. And that's what you get as an auditor. You get a thrill of actually finding a way to take the money. And as a developer, you're just constantly scared <laughs> that somebody will find them. So I've been on both sides and it's interesting. I kind of understand both sides at this point. So Yeah. Well, it's not just as a developer, you're constantly worried about something going wrong. Like as a user, as a researcher, like as a participant in this ecosystem, I think I'm just as afraid of uh, as the developers. But um, I do like it really resonates with. So I studied computer science and then never did programming professionally. But I just like so vividly remember like the first time I got a computer science homework assignment, it was like I ran home and I did it. It was the first time I was excited about like work, you know, and I think um, that same feeling, you know, for every intro uh, like program, they they make you write your own. Um, I think it's a C compiler, right? Like uh, anyway, like these like kind of like complex things, especially for students. And like I do remember getting that adrenaline, like when all your pieces kind of click together. But Man, I can't even imagine like the rush when you <laughs> put financial stakes to it. You're right. You're right. Because um, and that's one of the things about uh, working as an auditor that's a little bit different from regular software developer role. Uh, when you are a software developer, you're given a task and you kind of do small little steps towards that task and you get those dopamine boosts all the time. Right. So like every time something just slightly works, you get a dopamine boost. And <laughs> And it's good that that what keeps you going. But for auditing, it's different. You can go without a dopamine boost for like a week, for two weeks, and then you find one thing, right? So you have to kind of find a way to keep yourself excited because it's it's different from just regular software engineering uh, position. It it's, uh, has some unique kind of aspects to it. But yeah, you're totally right. It's uh, when something works, it's it's a great feeling. Yeah. And so just before we move on from this, like you said that you you started in crypto by just writing bots on centralized exchanges. I think for all the non-programmers out there, like the reason I started on centralized exchanges is because you can like write in like with modern computers as opposed to like the janky EVM. But what when you started, was this really about like the financial and the games and that piece of it? And then you kind of backed your way into understanding like the purpose of crypto and Ethereum? Or did you come to this uh, from a first principles? Oh, I had no idea like <laughs> what crypto is, can do and uh, what like what is possible and how much useful it can be. I was just, I'll be honest, it was purely financial um and uh i'm not i'm embarrassed to kind of tell what kind of bots i was writing <laughs> so it was like it was very financial driven <laughs> i was not there for the tech but now it's it's shifted though yeah man i i totally understand and look like at the end of the day it doesn't really matter how you get to the technology like it matters if you stay and why you stay you know so who cares like i uh i think you found like centralized trading bots because it was fun and like you could maybe make some money, maybe lose some money, but um, you're here now because like you hear the call of Ethereum, right? And and you see the vision and you want to push it forward. Yeah, definitely just see the perspective and what can be accomplished. For sure. Yeah, for sure. So let's, um, before we get to like audit world, like let's talk about your time at MetaMask. So you said you weren't writing smart contracts. What were you doing? 
Well, so if you ever go on MetaMask and if you go into a buy button, like buy crypto, so there is this kind of onboarding process that essentially just like offers you the best kind of quote and best route to um, purchase the crypto for fiat funds. So I was contributing to that routing engine that was finding out the best route uh, for you to buy crypto. So this was purely kind of like logical and a backend kind of job. So it was not anything to do with smart contracts because it's all like Web3, not like Web2 kind of world where you interact with those service providers that just offer you to buy crypto and you send them real money and they send you crypto to a wallet. So there's not much Web3 going on there. Um, so it was purely backend and that wasn't necessarily what I wanted. This is not what I was going into MetaMask, not the intent that I was going to MetaMask with. Yeah. Well, it totally makes sense. But given that you had that experience, do you think that like your perspective, like what, what I love about what you just said is that like, while we're all like trying to be giga brain about like financial, um, derivatives and like all this crazy stuff on chain, like really what we all need to be focused on is like simple things like UX and like getting users on board and just like, you know, the, the blocking and tackling of like building technology. And so did you find any like any interesting insights in the, you know, the, the ramp side of this industry? Um, I, I face some of the challenges that they encounter um, and uh, like, interesting aspects about how quote generation can work, right? So most of them are very technical. Um, I did realize how much we need Web3 and how many, like, because when you write this engine, right, you're essentially saying in your circumstances, here is the best route, right? And there's so many H cases to match everyone's circumstances. If you're from that region of the world, you cannot buy crypto because some other old dude there said that they're like now banned country or this amount of money is not allowed in this currency, but this one's allowed in the other currency. All of that is nonsense for crypto, right? Like you want to buy a token, just go buy a token. It's just that easy. But here it was insane how many kind of exceptions you have to think about. And it's a rather unpleasant experience, you know, and you, can, you, you almost kind of end up in a situation where you can try buy crypto with one combination of parameters. It wouldn't let you, but then you potentially can just do it with a different one, like with a different payment method. I'm like, what the hell? Like, why is the payment method important? Uh, but they're, they're there are reasons like for for the banks to prefer one payment method or the other because they have different trustworthiness. But yeah, those kind of rules, they just made me appreciate Web3 a little bit more um, and uh, how accessible it, it can be. Yeah, no, it's funny. I mean, like I'm going to reframe what you said and tell me if this resonates or not, but it sounds like you entered crypto because you thought it was like fun and had potential, but like didn't really care. And at your time at MetaMask, like while you didn't get to do the work that you actually wanted, that was like the experience that taught you like, well, the why of the technology. I think it's mostly like contributing to different crypto protocols that kind of opened my eyes to what can be built. It's almost like I was too small brain to understand like what can be ran with Solidity on EVM. So it was just like always you open a YouTube and they show you, oh, here's like, 
a multi-sig wallet that we're going to write today. I'm like, great. What am I going to do with that wallet? Like, how's that useful? <laughs> What's cool about it? I think when I started contributing to protocols, I understood the economy behind it, that those smart contracts actually interact with each other, that they're the money Legos, that if I want to interact with a protocol in some way or another, I don't even need to ask anybody's permission. And um, this this what kind of blew my mind uh, is because usually you request the API access, like keys and stuff. That was another thing. Like we had to um, get those API keys permissions and everything from all those um, basically like little exchanges to kind of buy uh, crypto with them. But in in DeFi, you don't even need to ask anyone. You just find a protocol you want. You want to build on top of Aave. You just plug into their contracts and nobody is even going to be able to tell you anything. So understanding that whole economy and how things can get interconnected and you and how you can extend pretty much anything, that what blew my mind. That's what was unique to me. And that was something that is just incredible. That that what makes the growth so exponential in terms of technology, right? That pop ups on, pops up on chain. Um, so that that part, I think, got me into it. And the, uh, by the time I was writing the um, that MetaMask uh, on 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 ramp uh, code, I was already deeply in love with Web three. So I was just more more and more disappointed in Web two. <laughs> yeah. No, I I think uh, we can have like four podcasts on the disappointments of Web two, and then like another ten podcasts on the disappointments of like the real world. But for the sake of brevity, <laughs> um, so. So I think you've kind of like covered this in its entirety over the, like your, all your other answers, but um, I, I'll just ask you directly, like I totally understand why you moved on from MetaMask and it was essentially because like you wanted to put your hands into the EVM and get on chain and that just wasn't the pro like what you were doing at MetaMask. But from from that standpoint, like not a lot of people choose to be auditors, right? Like a lot of people choose to go be contributors or to like be founders or to do lots of different things. But how did, I guess like now with, with the, the benefit of hindsight, like what about auditing drew you to it? And like, why do you find yourself just so passionate about it? Well, first of all, I really appreciate smart contract. To me, they're like art. They're short and they're capable and they are, they must be perfect. It, it's kind of a standard in the industry that a lot of people say, oh, you cannot write bug-free code. And good luck releasing a non-bug-free smart contract, right? This is just blows a lot of developers' minds that you, you cannot allow a single bug in production, right? You know, like a lot of people, a lot of uh, developers think in, in that way where they don't allow any bugs, but for a lot of people, it, the risk is so minuscule, they don't care. You know, if there's a tiny bug, nobody cares. Um, here, even if you have a tiny bug, a lot of people care. That's your reputation. That's uh, essentially bug bounties that you're going to have to pay out. Um, so it has to be perfect and it has to be extremely efficient because of the gas cost. So you're literally um, not just writing a giant kind of system that whatever, like here I can cut the corner, here I cut the corner, as long as the giant system works. 
you're writing something extremely efficient and you're, you're spending a lot of time trying to design it right. So that is just, to me, it's the top of the food chain for the developers. I, it is like, some people are going to say AI developers are the top of the food chain. Somebody is going to say a backend developer. Everyone has a different opinion to me. Writing smart contracts and auditing smart contracts is the top of the food chain because you 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 need to carve that perfect piece of code. It has to be perfect, you know. Yeah. Yeah, and that that's essentially just the uh, and the thrill of money being in the contracts and the fact that it has to be that perfect one thing that I think that has a lot of beauty to me and um, that's that's why I want to do it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I mean I think like. It sounds to me like you get all of the like benefits of being like a, a developer, but like with this also like sense of like responsibility and this sense of like last line of defense between, you know, like uh, testing and production and like in production, there's like real sharks out there that will like rip your face off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. And th there's also like a consensus diligence uh, is writing a lot of products as well. Um, a lot of them are very famous, like Visual Studio developer. Like if, if somebody ever wrote a smart contract, they probably know about that VS Code extension that just does all the highlighting for them. Um, there's fuzzing that uh, we're developing, which is pretty interesting too. It's rather performant. Um, so if you, if you do want to write like a regular pr product code, you can do that at Diligent. Um, but um, most of the time we audit, obviously. Yeah. So um, let's like zoom in a little bit and like, can you at a super, super high level, like, especially for uh, all of us that are not actually smart contract devs, but even for smart contract devs, can you talk us through like, what, what does the process of auditing even look like? Like, if I, if I send you a thousand lines of code right now, where do you start? Oh, uh, well, it's rather straightforward. It's like, it's a simple approach, but it's not easy, you know? Um, so when I was just starting, somebody told me that by the time the engagement ends, you have to be able to close the code that you are given and reproduce it pretty much line by line, right? So you need to know exactly what's going on. So for me, what works is basically um, either printing it out or putting it on an iPad, I prefer. I just put the code in an iPad, function by function. Um, and that's, a, that's not how I start, but that's how I essentially like more closer to the middle of the audit. Um, and I just uh, go with a pen and pencil and basically look at each function individually, eliminating all the assumptions of the surrounding code and kind of a look at specifically what each function does and what each function I believe should do sort of um, and, and compare my beliefs to what's happening. And then once you kind of look at them in isolation, you don't have any um, kind of uh, yeah, any assumptions about what the code should do. You don't share them with the original developers. Then you start seeing those misalignments of where like your beliefs go apart with like what the code does. Uh, but um, and yeah, you just go line by line and kind of look at each of them and try to understand each of them. And in the very beginning, you just basically start with the docs and then you start with like general architecture, what the files are, what the function that's going to be triggered and by whom, right? If I'm a user, which function are they going to interact with? Okay, so that's the entry point. And then everything just starts from there. You know, you just uh, follow which function calls which function. Uh, but uh, definitely starting with the docs, then uh, looking over the generally the scope 
scope is the list of files that are in a, in question. And then once you understand the general architecture, it's just like you, you really dive in into each line, each variable. And like, even if something is super straightforward during the audit, you actually need to look at it, like force yourself to look at it because you might feel like it's straightforward and then actually make sure that it's doing what it's supposed to do. Cause the bugs are usually very frequently are in a places that people think are very straightforward because they don't think twice about them. And then there's like some weird kind of edge case in there that those are nicest to catch because you, because usually you would miss them. And, uh, they're, they're usually like on, they're usually like one liner, uh, things, but they're really hard to catch. And you're like, damn, I wonder how many people looked right at it and didn't see it. Yeah, I don't know if this is like directly relevant in this solidity case, but like, again, going back to my computer science education, like it's like floating point mismatches would like are literally invisible on the human code side, but like will destroy the application. Right. So speaking to that, um, like how much of your process relies on like your human brain and eyes reading lines of code and how much relies on automated tools that like help um, just like blast the code with as many different variables as possible. And so that you can kind of like see the outputs and then ladder backwards. Mm -hmm. it, it depends on the engagement time, right? So usually it's, it's, it's sometimes easy to just run some tools that um, give you some kind of, you throw a code at them, doesn't matter if you compile or anything, they do static analysis, they just look at what's written and give you some insight into it and give you some kind of risky places, right? So sometimes we do that, but most of my time is actually manual review. So I don't necessarily do fuzzing, for example, on every single engagement, because then it's so much time trying to figure out how to deploy the client's code, right? And uh, a lot of the sometimes it doesn't compile, which uh, happens rather rarely now. But um, so trying to actually like set up the whole environment is usually complex. And the diligence that the, the code bases we look at are usually complex. Um, so setting them up, will take time and um it's always a risk whether you have the time to actually dedicate to setting up the environment and then like run a fuzzing campaign for example um so usually a fuzzing would be done not in the audit but or as a part of a separate engagement or just by the developers themselves because they have a limited amount of time and they can then rewrite the campaign each time they make any changes right but i prefer just manual um, kind of line by line approach. Cause then I feel comfortable that I looked at everything. I covered everything myself and, uh, then I know where everything is and how everything works just for like, if, unless I do that, I wouldn't be comfortable delivering cause then I'd be nervous. <laughs> yeah. I mean, dude, that, I, that's like genuinely surprising for me to hear, but amazing, like totally amazing. Cause I, <laughs> As a non-auditor, I would just like imagine that even like let's imagine someone wrote a like a function that rounds down, like you know, just does floor. Like I I know how to read code, you know, I know the division and then like and edge cases around certain divisions based on like data types and stuff. But um, I don't know. I guess like the way I don't have the confidence. Like I would need to have like machines like just throw everything at it in order to feel confident in myself. And so 
I don't know if that's the difference between you and me or experience or what, but it's oh, just no, super cool to hear. It's a different approach. It's a different approach, right? Um, if, if you took, if you look at the rounding function, right, there's uh, several ways you can go about it, right? If we look at this simple example, right? You can look at it line by line and try to prove, convince yourself that it's secure. You can um, throw a lot of numbers at it and see if anything violates your assumptions, or you can try to mathematically prove it, right? And say that, just write a mathematical proof where you say that there's under no circumstances, this can generate an answer. And I feel like for something that does rounding, I might be wrong, but like the mathematical approach will be the ultimate one, right? Because it's like a rather, I don't want to say simple, but it's, it's most likely fits the mathematical kind of direction very well. Uh, but for something that is a more complex, complex protocol, it becomes more and more difficult to kind of do an exhaustive mathematical proof. You're more like uh, maybe proving a financial model at that point, but uh, you might want to talk about that with people who actually like concentrate on mathematical proving but uh yeah no i you like you just opened up like a whole can of worms that will just uh go, yeah. like <laughs> we'll, we'll step past but it's super interesting to think about like the different types of certainty tools that auditors use and like when they're applicable um but we'll, we'll keep walking <laughs> something super interesting that you mentioned was that like sometimes you'll get code and it, it may be more rare now but like it might not compile or it's super hard to compile or it's just super hard to get it like in a like kind of up and going state like how much of your job as an auditor is to check to see like if the code even works the way that the developers want like if it works at all versus just like reading it and looking for bugs and edge cases and that kind of stuff so over time you kind of get an, a feel for whether the code's going to be good or bad and one of the red flags is when the happy path does not work right and uh by happy path i mean if you're a yield farm right like let's consider something very simple i should be able to deposit like lp tokens and get rewards right if every time i try to deposit lp tokens the contract gonna revert then i know that this has not been tested at all right like at all. <laughs> and even if that path was not tested, what's going to happen when I think about the edge cases, right? What's going to happen when I try to actually break it? Well, usually things go really bad in those kind of um, like cases where people didn't even test their main functionality. Um, and um, at diligence, we usually just say that sometimes we have to say that this code we don't recommend for production um, is just not ready. And um, so we, we, we don't post reports too frequently. We don't publicize them because we give people an option to publicize the report or keep it private. So a lot of reports just like don't ever see the light of day because people just don't want to publish them. Uh, but yeah, it, it, it's usually like you can tell rather quickly, um, like in the first few days, whether, whether this like whether you would put your money in it or not, and whether should others. Um, but uh, a lot of the times, uh, there this little bucks in the happy path, um, much less common uh, that the code doesn't compile. That's something that's I think um, kind of thing of the past, at least for the clients that we work with. Um, very common thing is people submitting one code for price estimation. 
and that's giving us the other code to audit. That's like majority of the client. Like um, when I see a team that gives uh, a commit hash or like the version of the code for price estimation and it gives the same version of the code for auditing, I'm like, I like these guys. These, they have their shit together. They, they're good. Well, but let that be known, listeners. There's some uh, auditor alpha for you. Like, it is not worth like trying to shave off the extra few percent to like have your auditor not be like on board with you. <laughs> yeah, it's like give it a little bit of time. Like, finish your code, right? Make sure it's done. I understand people have um, time constraints and everything, but um it, it is frustrating you know you get one code and it's never less code it's always more code and that is just um a little annoying a little frustrating but uh, we understand we usually unless it's like obnoxious we kind of uh, try to work with the client and try not to um like try to accommodate but it's just like annoying it's a little annoying and uh, i personally do do very much like teams who can give themselves some time to actually finish the code and just give the uh, code that they wanted to price to the auditors to audit. It means that they have some process in place that works for them, that is not rushed, that is uh, more mature and more serious. So that that is a nice thing to see. Um, but yeah, also, what else we, we do um, during the audit, we, we communicate to the client a lot. So by the time we generate the report, for example, we the, the, the bugs in the report are not a surprise. As soon as we find them, we, we tell them and then report is just like an official thing that they can publish or share. But uh, yeah. So, so in that vein, um, with that, like I, I am not asking you for any specific stories to be clear, but like, do you ever have situations where you are finding either bugs or like things that need to be addressed and like getting really strong pushback from the client teams? Yes, definitely. What, what are the types of scenarios in which like that happens? Um, just protocols trying to downplay their issues. And I feel like at diligence, we are not putting major on minor bugs. Like we, we're really trying to be rather strict to ourselves and what we find. So we never change that. <laughs> we already kind of side with a client in, internally. Like we want to make sure that we don't like blow up the issues that we find to something disproportionate where it's like a non-issue becomes media more like a medium becomes critical. Um, and with that philosophy, it kind of, not that difficult to say guys we believe we believe what we wrote and we're not going to change that um some people don't like it some people just accept it um but uh, it it happens happens frequently uh but um we just have one policy for that which don't change yeah again without asking any specific questions or examples like have you ever had a time when, be, because the way that um, the consensus works is that they offer the um, the audit report privately and then it's up to the protocol to disclose it or not. Have there ever been situations where you know that there was something that needed to be addressed and 
wasn't sure if it was addressed and never saw the client report away and you just kind of had to like sit with that uncomfortable knowledge? So this is an interesting one because it never happened to me, but I wonder if that happened to my colleagues. So we're lucky where we work with mostly serious protocols. So like they have to uh, either fix their issues to show like the report to investors, even if they don't publish it, they have to show it to someone. Um, so most of the time people just fix them. Uh, but I haven't yet worked with a protocol where you essentially see a major bug and they refuse to fix it and then refuse to publish the report. Because when, then, then what's the purpose of the audit, right? They still want to get their code better. What they want usually is to just downplay, like they fix it, but they want the report to look better, you know? So they're not opposed to fixing issues. Uh, they're opposed to seeing that they had an issue. Um, so I haven't been in a situation where like the bug that is extremely critical went unfixed, but I wonder if my colleagues were. I should actually ask that. Well, uh, and and I'm not. If it didn't happen to your colleagues at consent at, at diligence, if it didn't happen to diligence, it definitely happened at some audit audit uh, firm somewhere. And so, which which uh, makes me want to talk to you about just like the state of auditing in general. Like, h- how do you feel about where auditing is like as an industry? Do you think that the way that like crypto Twitter and like the people that are relying on these audits like are appropriately understand like what the audit is telling you is safe and what's not or do you think like we still have a lot of work to do in just like developing this safety layer that you contribute to uh, let, let, let's unpack that question so <laughs> first of all i don't think people i think often people misunderstand what the role of an auditor is and like in general they put too too much uh, weight on an audit well, audit is just one kind of piece of a puzzle of protocol security. You can have all the audits in the world and still get hacked. Um, so I, I don't think it's um, right to kind of expect a stamp of an audit and just expect that it's safe. Um, but uh, also then... Yeah, sorry, I, I did ask too dense of a question, but just picking off what you said there, I think like the exact, exact right a perfect example for this is the uh, not the curve hack, but the Viper hack, right? Whereas like we can talk like we can say that curve had enough audits. They needed more audits. Like it doesn't matter. It does not matter how many people looked at that code because like the issue was in somewhere lower in the stack. And so I think like that might be what you're referring to that like auditing is not this like stamp of approval of security. It's actually like this very specific thing. Yeah, and in general, like um, that can happen, right? But even then, we we kind of try to look at what like Solidity version or Viper version of the protocol uses. So it's usually still considered. But like I think Euler, I forgot what exactly the the issue there was, but like they were a serious team that kind of took security seriously, right? Um, and they had good auditors and uh, several audits, I believe. But uh, it, it happens, and there's like so many little things that people just might oversee once, twice, three times. It's just natural. 
And especially if the system is very complex, there's so many things that can go wrong. And the more you work towards security, the more of those you eliminate, right? And eventually you can eliminate them all, uh, but it takes time and it takes many, many steps, not just one step, right? So that is something that needs to be understood. And I think um, the, the kind of problem people have with auditing is the fact that it was in high demand and the market kind of dictated the prices to be rather high at least in the beginning of uh, the DeFi. So that kind of misalignment with uh, of how much people think they should pay for an audit and what they should get um, is, is kind of what makes people think this way, I believe personally. Uh, but um, it, right, the market dictates what it is basically. So, um, but people have a little bit of a high expectation, I guess, from what an audit report offers them in terms of security. Well, that was a super interesting insight that you just dropped that like it, that at least from your perspective, which I am like fully agreeing with that it seems like the market started expecting that these audit reports represented a lot more and that might have been a result of the like supply demand, which resulted in a pricing problem that may still be going on or may be relieved in the in every bowl, sorry, in every bear, and come back in every bowl. But um, man, it's just like another incredible example of how like everything really does boil down to economics. <laughs> yeah, so because I've been on both sides, right? I've been hiring auditors and I've been doing audits, um, and it, it is incredible how I can change sides <laughs> depending on what I need to do, right? Because um, I do understand that for developers, um, it, it's rather nice to be able to iterate quickly, right? As a startup, you want to iterate fast. You want to learn, fail, build again, and uh, get feedback, fail again, get feedback, and then succeed, right? Like you want to iterate as much as you can. But in, in DeFi, each iteration is extremely pricey. Each iteration you do is an additional audit, and that is frustrating, right? Um, but then as an auditor on the auditor side, you know that there's a backlog of protocols that need to be audited. There's a very short list of people who can do the job, especially if it's a DeFi related where you actually need to understand the, uh, like a DeFi Legos and like those financial pieces. So there's a, a very few people that do it, relatively few, uh, at least the looking at the demand. And then, um, also, you have to look at what happens if you make a mistake um, and your reputation gets bashed and you go for a really hard time and people start asking you to pay off their bug bounties and everything. So people want you to share their downside, but they never want to share your their, their upside with you, right? So it's a very ungrateful kind of position because you're going to, it's like, I don't want to compare it to like a hockey goalie because <laughs> hockey goalies do get credit when they like, um, when they do good saves, but it's basically like you don't get praised for doing a good job, but you do get bashed really hard for missing something. It's like, you're expected to do a good job, but if you didn't, you were going to get like destroyed. So nobody shares the upside, only the downside. So I, I also understand the auditors here. Um, it, it's, it's a rough, it's going to be balanced. And just like you said, it's going to be like an economical kind of situation of who is ready to pay what and who is ready to do this job for how much. 
No, you're, you're totally right to um, like point that out. And like I sympathy from the community to you, like you're totally right. Like you will only ever eat shit if something happens. And if nothing happens, like people will forget you exist. And like, yeah, depending on whatever your job is, you, you have the same joke. But for your job, it's like you don't know what a bad Sorry, you don't know what a good IT person looks like. You only know if they exactly. were good once they leave, right? And like that's that's a <laughs> auditing world. <laughs> exactly, it, it is like that. And there, there's certain things that you can do, right, to kind of stay relevant as an auditing firm, and like you can release products, educational content, and like be praised for contributing to the environment in different ways. But you're not necessarily being loved for just doing your job, which is kind of weird, right? You're you said you're going to audit, you audit, but that's not necessarily enough all the time. And, you know, honestly, it makes me think of like uh, TradFi accounting firms, which do audits, right? Like Enron, like what we think of like Arthur Anderson and Enron, like evil, they like the the accounting firm, like really fucked up and blah, blah. but like, who's ever been like KPMG? They did it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, it's only when they fuck it up. Yeah. So um, queuing into something you said about how it's it. Not only is being a, um, let's say, an EVM auditor a specialized skill, but even more specialized than that is being a DeFi auditor. Like, can you just, like, I, I am sure what you're referring to is that, like, when you start building with composability and with money Legos, like, not only are you having to um, audit your specific protocol and the lines of code that you wrote, but you as an auditor now also need to like, if not do full audits, like really understand the dependencies of all the other protocols. And so can you just talk through a little bit like how how far out from the protocol that you're auditing do you need to look in order to feel comfortable um, calling something safe or not? Yeah, so a decent amount, right? So first of all, you need to understand what um, specific uh, dangers are there on a particular chain that you're deployed to, right? So for example, like on Ethereum, you can get front run, sandwiched or things like that, right? So that's one thing to consider immediately. So you can't just look at the code and just try to find what logical issues are there. You also need to like kind of look into what environment it runs in. Um, then you need to understand what kind of um, uh, assets can be deployed in there, right? Because some tokens are erasing, some are re-entered. So you need to understand like what are actual like risks based on what assets are going to be held there. Um, then you see like what kind of information the protocol gives out to other protocols, right? If there's some price view functions, those can be manipulated potentially. And if they can get manipulated, who's going to be reading those price feeds and who can get hurt by that? So, and then another thing that's really important um, is that you usually have a limited amount of time to, to audit a project. And, um, what helps is knowing the common DeFi primitives, right? Like you need to know, uh, for example, how staking usually works, how liquid staking derivatives work. You need to know like what a typical AMM looks like or a typical farm looks like. You need to know how some options work. If you don't, you can still audit, right? But you're going to spend much more time trying to figure out what they do instead of actually how they do it and what could go wrong. So this knowledge definitely helps. So it helps keeping up with different protocols and like what kind of uh, novel models they're introducing because it just saves you time during the audit significantly. Uh, but yeah, you, you do need to think like what are different protocols that can interact with 
with the code that you're looking at, what assets are stored there, where it's deployed. So you, you go a decent amount. Um, so let, let's just uh, like without, like we'll pick an example and one that I'm pretty sure you're familiar with, which is Umami Finance, right? Their, their vault product. Let's say that they came to you and were like, Ty, we need an audit. So for those, for those that aren't aware, Umami has a vault product that is essentially providing liquidity to GMX. And then it's using, so it's doing proprietary stuff in its own protocol while providing liquidity to GMX. And then also has a, a side protocol that's external, but it's providing insurance in case of like a DPEG or that kind of thing. And then on top of that, this whole structure is on Arbitrum, which is a rollup on Ethereum. Like with all those like different, like, are you looking into the code of GMX? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you definitely have to. Um, at, at that point, when it's so deeply integrated, like they might be utilizing like a function ABC of GMX, right? But what if there's function like F that once you trigger it, something messes up in the functions that Umami would be using. So at this point, you like you kind of have to look at GMX um, uh, very deeply, actually. Do you need to look at the, like, let's say an insurance protocol? Everything, whatever they put in the scope, you must look at. What about Arbitrum? Arbitrum, probably not. You need to know like how Arbitrum operates, what kind of interesting things can be done on Arbitrum and which ones cannot. Uh, but you don't need to look at Arbitrum code specifically. Um, but uh, GMX for sure, like usually it's just everything that the protocol wants you to look at, the files, and anything that they're touching uh, to a certain extent you have to look at. So if they're touching GMX, then and this this much, you, you kind of have to very well understand what happens uh, behind the scenes where when Umami interacts with GMX. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. And yeah, it sounds like you basically need to go as you need to touch, you need to look at everything within the EVM that you're audited, the company you're, or sorry, the protocol that you're auditing is touching. You need to look at everything. And then you might, but probably don't need to look at the infrastructure that it is built on top of. Right. And uh, usually you, you still don't look at GMX the same depth you're going to be looking at Umami code, obviously. Uh, you're just like in certain isolated things that are um, that Umami would be interacting with, for example. Yeah, got it. Um, so an, a super interesting thing you said was in reference to like when you're working on Ethereum mainnet, like you need to worry about front running, sandwich attacks, like that kind of stuff. And so like it didn't even really occur to me that... Um, not only like auditing is of course about like finding vulnerabilities, but it's not in like the static world that most computer science in. It's in this like very alive dynamic and like this MEV world. Um, and so I guess my question to you is like, how much do you think about um, like the, the true like MEV research and the block building and like what's going on in there to inform like the behaviors that are going to appear um, for the protocols that you care about. So it's interesting that you bring it up because on chain, there's much less kind of activity where it's uh, like called typically called race conditions or something like that. So I feel like fine, like 
Uh, it's actually counterintuitive, but I feel like in a traditional hacking, there's way more of those kind of situations where what if I call this function while I'm calling this function and then I just, this one finishes a millisecond faster and there's so much more you can do. But on Ethereum, no matter what, everything is executed sequentially. There's no multi-thread, you know, so it kind of eliminates a so much complexity, like so much complexity. So when you think about it this way as a single thread, like front running and just like sandwiching is just like kind of not that difficult kind of race conditions that you can exploit. So you do think about it a lot, but once you think about it, um, for some time, it kind of comes naturally. You kind of start thinking about like every function you look at it, you're like, what if I called something else before that? Or like, what if, uh, what if I can call a function in different order than they were um, uh, like designed to be called? So typically on, on chain, thinking about those kind of scenarios is not too difficult because you don't need to worry about like having multiple instances of something running or having like, um, two functions called somehow in the same, at the same time and trying to see which one executes first. Like it's, it's, it's kind of similar, but it's usually like much more simple on chain. So, um, which, which I love the fact, the fact that it runs kind of on a single thread, it, it just makes my life so much easier. And I think everyone's life. <laughs> well, for, I mean, threading is like, oh, obvious now that you say it, but the other one too, is that in traditional hacking, like you can lit like a, a DDoS attack is like literally free if you own the computers, right? Whereas everything within the EVM costs the attacker money. And so like you Oh, you you'd be surprised. DDoS attacks on smart contracts are not always that difficult. So what is it go on? <laughs> <laughs> there there's oftentimes like people just don't think that you can call a function with a certain parameters and then you call it like five times and then you break access to someone accessing that contract. It's often where like uh, one user can do something on behalf of the other user where the other user is just gonna break their funds or something. Um, so those kind of bugs, we don't talk about them too much because it's like hackers don't necessarily incentivize to do those because they don't get any benefit, but they can just ruin somebody else's life, right? And those bugs happen more often than not uh, because people just don't, and developers don't think about them. And you, it's like, oh, you call this function with this address, but with that value and that user just loses access to a protocol or some shit. Um, so those happen a lot actually. So, and it, it's kind of denial of service. It's just not distributed denial of service, but kind of denial of service that is not distributed is actually very common. Like happens a lot. Yeah. Well, honestly, that makes me pretty nervous just because like, I, I, we're so, I, I do believe we're so early. And like, I think that like right now we can't think of reasons that people would be incentive, incentivized just to come to cause that kind of chaos. But like, holy shit, uh, our world is like just people like setting fires for the fun of it. <laughs> all over the place. Like that makes me nervous to know that that's a lurking problem here. <laughs> yeah, I, I forgot what it was, but that was like one of the, I think it's one of the most famous bugs that every every kind of auditor gets introduced to auditing with. It's like that, ah, I forgot what it was, but it was a multi-sig wallet where somebody just posted like, oh, I accidentally killed it. Like um, a lot of money was lost, and I forgot the name. It literally flew out of my name, uh, my my head. Let me just Google it. It's so famous. Wait, is this the parody? 
Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Right? The, the, the guy clearly knew what he was doing. Like, it's not simple experiment that he ran. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's like, oops, I accidentally killed it. I, okay. <laughs> like, he destroyed the implementation of the proxy, and then it's like nobody could use their wallets anymore, and all the funds got stuck, right? He didn't profit from it at all, but he just decided to run it. And I'm like, I don't buy that you accidentally killed it. I feel like you just couldn't could control your genuine interest. It's like the Adam and Eve and that apple. <laughs> but there, at least there was an apple and this guy just like, uh, it's just to mess, mess with something, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I mean, the only reason I even know about that story is because I read, I, I entered it through the drama of like hearing about um, people trying to push through Ethereum, like, level consensus like a change to the parity wallet like contract specifically to get the eth out and like i um yeah that's a wild story i uh it is, one, it is. <laughs> one day we just got to do like actually you know what ty like i will like we'll uh coordinate but like it would be really fun to just do like a history of like the most crazy ridiculous things um that are like hacks or just like crazy stories like this um but yeah, that would be cool. I think that one is one of the most famous one. Uh, it's because it's hilarious. The guy just like bricked a lot of money and just like, oops, I accidentally killed it. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> it's hilarious. It was sad too, but yeah, definitely sad because like a lot of like real people, like that was their money they got bricked. But um, I don't know. I guess it's just more burned. So yay. <laughs> uh, like I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> all right well anyway um that like i i don't want to take up your whole day here so ty i just like really appreciate um your your thoughts and like i just learned so much about like what auditing actually is and how it works and um man you just you have so much to teach us and to teach me about um like the actual last step before deploying things to ethereum you know it's so easy to talk about like big visions and like to actually just like hack things together but um, like what you guys do and what you do is just like make sure that we're actually building infrastructure and not just building like a carnival that's going to like fall apart and kill a bunch of people. Yeah, definitely. And it's a pleasure to talk to your ex all the time. You ask very wonderful questions and you keep it going very smoothly. So I appreciate that a lot. Uh, thank you. Well, before I let you go, uh, any like, and where, first of all, where can the people find you? And then anything you wanted to shout out or um, let the people know, like how do, how do they get more involved? <laughs> yeah, so essentially uh, they, they can always reach out to me on Twitter. Um, if uh, there's any anyone who's trying to get an audit from Consensus Diligence, you can also reach out to me on Twitter and then I'll forward you to uh, the people who do the scheduling. So that shouldn't be a problem. Uh, but yeah, just uh, I hope people treat their smart contracts seriously and also believe that it has to be a perfection that is completely bug free. And then our lives are going to be a little easier, a little more stress-free. Yeah, for sure. No. And yeah, stay tuned. Like make sure you subscribe to this podcast because like coming shortly, I hope it will be the, our next episode where not only will we do like hilarious or sad war stories, but we will do tips and tricks to uh, make your auditor like you. <laughs> yeah, that's actually, there, there are quite a few of them yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or hate you depending on what you want. Yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Again, this is such a pleasure and I really appreciate it. And um, I talk to you soon. Yep. Thanks, Rex. Bye-bye.